Hey everyone, it's uh, David and I'm here with uh, Cody. This is holiday chat number three for 2020. Cody, Merry Christmas. How are you doing? Merry Christmas to you, sir. I'm doing well. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm great. Um, why don't we start off? Why don't you give us a little bit about your background and then we can, uh, we can start looking at what you would like to, uh, what you want to work on or discover today. Sure. Um, i trying to think how much of my background I should talk about. I'll just make it really brief. I grew up in, uh, I'm in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. I grew up on big ranches way out in the country. My dad was a wildlife ranch manager and I went away to college. I studied, uh, finance mm -hmm. and, um, that led me into the investing world quite a bit. I actually worked in the banking industry for a little while, did a little bit of finance work. Uh, I've spent the better part of the last 20 years um, really mastering the craft of investing and the science behind that. And it took me about 15 years to finally really understand what I was doing. Um, long story short, I ended up getting into this business by accident. I'm in the Amazon FBA business. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the stuff I was doing in the stock markets and such actually worked better in online retail. Ironically, it was a very similar system, arbitrage kind of stuff, and it, it worked much better in online retail. So I just got into it, fell into that, and that evolved over time into um, launching our own brands, finding supply, uh, finding manufacturers for our own designs and all kinds of things like that. And so now we sell a wide variety of products. I sell hats and I sell, um, actually I have a couple partners that I taught the business to. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically been three of us. I was the one who founded it about a little over seven years ago. And then I brought the two partners on. We've grown it to about a little over 1 million a year in revenue and about a quarter to a third of that is net profit. And um, we also sell baby blankets and baby car seat canopies and rugs and all kinds of stuff like that. And so in particular, what I'm looking, I'm looking to grow and we grow organically by just launching new products, finding new product ideas and new brands and suppliers and so on and so forth. But I'm also really interested in potentially growing through acquisition. Okay. There's a lot of Amazon FBA businesses for sale out there. And um, let me make sure, sorry, my phone. Um, and I just wanted to see if you thought that was possible, if it's doable, if you have much experience with an Amazon FBA. Um, what I know so far, and you may know a lot more than I do about the acquisition part of Amazon FBA, is that it's tough to get financing, bank financing through it, because it's an online business. It's mostly intangibles. Yep. And uh, about the only thing you really see is inventory. That's mostly what I see in, in terms of assets is inventory. <clears throat> um, one advantage is it's very mobile. You can do it anywhere. Uh, but other than that, that's kind of what I was just curious about. I know SBA loans, you know, in the United States aren't a big SBA is real careful. They don't really want to do loans on um, online business, supposedly I've heard and so on. So I was just curious what your thoughts were and what kind of deal structures I should expect if you even think it's doable to sure. do that kind of stuff. So, so um, I, I want to explore your business here a little bit more. So, and just for people who are listening, who don't know, <clears throat> arbitrage is simply when you find something in one market for a lower price and you can sell it in another market. And so you started off by finding things for sale in one place where you could sell for more, maybe on Amazon. And then eventually you went to your own products that you're having made, correct? That's right. That's right. right. So, and the advantage, the number one complaint I hear from people who do any kind of Amazon FBA is that once they start to get something that really has traction, all of a sudden other people appear with the same item. And so this is why it's really important that you have something that you're having manufactured. It's unique to you. You're the only one that can sell it, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've worked on online businesses, buying and selling. I have not helped anyone specifically do an Amazon FBA, 
but I've been part of a couple of conversations regarding Amazon FBA. And I'll tell you that online businesses, uh, I do have a client who's in my adventure coaching group who got an SBA loan to buy an online business in the UK and move it to the States. So it is possible to, <clears throat> to get a, an SBA loan for online businesses. I think though, it depends on what kind of business it, it is. So for example, in this case, it was an online SaaS business that already had a base of subscribers that were paying monthly. And so the cash flow of that business would be very different from relying upon people continuously choosing to buy your product every month. You know, the, if something happened and your item became less visible on the Amazon marketplace, your sales could go down right away. Whereas this other business, people have given their credit card, they're paying every month, they're using the product. And so perhaps that's one of the big reasons why they were able to do that. And, and it's much more difficult in Amazon FBA. Now, what's interesting, <clears throat> and this isn't to say that Google spies on us, but shortly after getting the email related to your call, I saw an advertisement on the side of a Google search for a company that is doing Amazon FBA rollup. <laughs> and so not surprised. <laughs> not surprised. I see that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I took a quick look at this website from this company and I won't mention them. Um, but, but they're advertising, Hey, do you have an Amazon FBA business you want to sell? We are acquiring them. And when I started to read the fine print, they were talking about, the percentages of payouts that achieved complete, complete, um, completion, which leads me to believe without actually seeing an offer that they've made is that they're largely offering people deals related to future performance, some kind of earnout based on future performance. Maybe there's some kind of down payment. I don't know. But uh, in speaking with people who are more involved in this online space, what, um, I gather is that the very small Amazon FBA businesses that might sell for 40 or 50 grand are largely being sold for cash, sometimes with um, some kind of escrow for 30 or 90 days where some money's being held while the changeover occurs and, and people are able to fully grasp, yep, everything you, you promised me has been delivered. Um, but a lot of them are being done with some kind of earnout component, especially the ones that are selling for over 100 grand. Uh, simply because the buyers don't have all that kind of cash and there's a lack of financing. So it's, it's basically the way most businesses are sold in most places around the world. Um, you know, the SBA small business 7A loan is, is uh, not normal. It's the only place in the world where that kind of thing exists. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else in the world, people have to borrow against tangible assets of a business and then work out some kind of creative financing, usually involving seller notes for the balance of the deal. And so those Amazon FBA businesses are really being sold the way that every other small business in the world is being sold. What concerns me about Amazon FBA, of course, is that the whole business is built upon the Amazon platform. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain risk just in being you know, within somebody else's domain, right? That where yeah. they create the rules. And so if I were in your shoes, I'd be wanting to acquire on some kind of earnout or royalty arrangement anyway, just in case some drastic change comes along that kills the business, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and from what I see from people I talk to about these websites like Flippa and, and these marketplaces online where people are, trying to sell these Amazon FBA businesses is that the multiple keeps creeping up. 
um, because there's this impression. Uh, it's one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today. There's this impression that an online business somehow equals an automatic business where if you acquire right. it, it's just kind of runs itself and you just magically get money in your bank account. That's right. And it's not true. It's not true at all. I've been in this seven years and we've grown well and it's not true. I spend a good amount of time working on it all. If nothing else, just to keep the whole thing going. Well, you know, well, yeah, there's because there's glitches, something. Well, you know, there's always someone who's dissatisfied or tries to return something or a, a shipping delay or like it's real work, isn't it? Why don't you yes, tell us absolutely. How, how much do you work every week on this Amazon FBA business? Well, I'm, I'm per now I work a lot to grow, but I will tell you that I work 40 hours a week pretty easily. 40, yeah. I say that 30 to 30 to 40 to be completely fair. Now, if I really wanted to minimize my work hours, maybe 10 hours a week, but I couldn't, I really, maybe less, but I couldn't grow right. very well. Because the growth is where you got to put all the time and effort in. And this business, I wanted to t say this, I found that the average life expectancy of a new product page on Amazon is around three to five years. So if you launch a product, now some go 10, of course, but it seems like you, you launch a product, put all this work and effort into it. The product has a tendency that it's go, its life cycle will go up and then it'll start to taper off just like all products do. And Amazon has that tendency. So the life expectancy is around three to five years. And I've actually talked to a few Amazon sellers who wanted to sell to me. And I can tell you in multiple cases, they're sell, they launch like 10 products. One would be a huge home run mm -hmm. and it would run up to like a million dollars a year. And then within two years, it would be down to 30,000 a year for that product. Huge variation, huge swings. And that's why I would say uh, those earnouts would be super important because you just don't know when it just starts to die. Something, cause, something happens, competition, Amazon changes something, something like that. But yeah, the Amazon business is definitely not, uh, I would say it's on par with a lot of other businesses. If you automate and delegate enough, you really don't have to be there a ton. And I've spent a lot of time doing that. Um, you talk about building systems and I've spent a lot of time doing that. Mm. Um, and so I see that kind of system, but at the same time, you can spend tons of hours doing this and still feel like you're spinning your wheels sometimes. So it is, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely a chunk of work. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and so here's, here would be my fear because I don't know a lot about Amazon FBA. So if I went into this marketplace and I started to look at these different businesses for sale, to your point, they could have a run-up of revenue and look like everything is just peachy, where a more experienced buyer would look at the results and say, oh, this is about to fall off a cliff, or mm -hmm. it's, it started to peak, and maybe this is why the person wants to sell. And so what, what you're looking at, I think, is to do something like what this other company is advertising, whose page I ended up on, and that is to do not just a roll-up strategy, but an acquisition program. So you kind of create the framework of a program. This is how we acquire FBA businesses, period. And you have some sort of formulaic presentation. Now you're able to go out there and just talk to Amazon FBA sellers, whether they're for sale or not. And you can reach out to them and say, look, we are acquiring and we'd love to send you a presentation about how we do the acquisition. And you can say, this is how we do it. We, we offer you uh, this kind of valuation and we pay you over a period of time <clears throat> based on the performance of the products we acquire from you. And maybe there's a component of a down payment that you give them. Maybe estimated on the total value, you give them 10 or 15 or 20% down. Um, and then you're able to just pound that out and send it to a bunch of different people. And 
<clears throat> this is something that you will see in industries with a lot of little independent operators like pest control. You know, in, in most small towns, there's one guy with a pickup truck who has a route and he goes around and he visits different businesses and he's always getting solicitations from uh, the big national pest control brand names. And so you can just do that same thing. That is a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. As you said, um, that's another question to parlay into another question I had, and you made the comment 10, 15, 20% down. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask you what would be a fair down payment, <clears throat> excuse me, from either, um, from my own capital. I forgot to tell you, I, I have, I have my own capital to invest, but I also have one investor family member who's got about a half million that's sitting around in cash and you know, inflation's just destroying cash all the time. And she really wants to, and she's already invested in my business, made really good returns. She wants to invest a portion of it um, in each deal. So if I did 10 deals, she'd invest all 50,000 in each, for example. But I was curious, um, back to my question, do you think 10, 15, 20% down on these businesses is roughly in a fair range? Well, you see, when I look at businesses that have very little in the way of tangible asset value, um, like a food court restaurant in a mall, okay? So someone could build, could pay a quarter million, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars to build that, even though there's no dining room, it's common area dining space in that mall, right? Mm -hmm. They can spend a lot of money on the decor, on laying out the restaurant, uh, kitchen, on the plumbing, on the venting, all that kind of stuff. And what then do they have left? I mean, the, with government-backed programs um, like the SBA or other programs in different countries where leasehold improvements can be included in the, in the you know, government-guaranteed loan program, that business might be able to get 75% financing, maybe, maybe a little bit more. But if you were to buy that business <clears throat> with the idea that you want to borrow against the tangible assets if any banker looked at that business and said, look, if I had to liquidate that business, I have to pay to remove the ovens, the stoves, the deep fryers, right? And now there's really the leaseholds are valueless. They end up becoming the property of the landlord. And so there's nothing really there. And so I worked on plenty of deals where there's very little in the way of tangible asset value where the buyer, particularly if it's something like a restaurant, the buyer typically is someone coming out of that industry. So they've been working somewhere as a cook or a server or something. And, and as you know, the wages aren't that great in that industry. So how much can we expect them to have as far as money? And so these people will come along and maybe they piece together what amounts to 10, 15, 20%. And the seller, you know, they want to hold out for someone who's going to pay them all cash without some kind of government guaranteed loan program that will allow a high amount of leverage you know, that person's just going to keep waiting because if they want a hundred thousand for their business, people with a hundred thousand in cash are trying to find, trying to buy a $500,000 business. Mm -hmm. They don't want a hundred thousand dollar business. And so what ends up eventually happening is they realize if I'm going to sell, I have to either wait for a buyer who doesn't really know what they're doing, who happens to have money, which could take years, or I'm going to have to make a deal with this guy who seems eager and honest and wants to make a deal and is willing to work hard and, and pay me over time. And so the only way that seller will accept the deal is number one, they have to be truly motivated. They really have to want to move on to something else. And they have to believe that the person they're selling to is a capable operator. Because in that moment, the seller 
not only do they have a business buyer or, or business seller hat on, they also have a banker hat on because they're the, effectively the ones making the loan to you, sure. to the buyer. And so they have to believe you can do it. So this is what puts you in a good position. You can demonstrate to people that you have a track record of successfully operating at Amazon FBA business and you can reveal your numbers to them. You say, look, this is our success. This is how we ramp on new products. And these are some of the things we brought on. And so you can address that worry from a potential seller that you don't know what you're doing. You can show that you do. And then the next question will be, are they motivated enough to accept a small amount of money down and then take payments over time? And that always comes from something outside the business. It's always a pressing personal motivation. So why do they not want to do it anymore, right? Is it because they want to move on to another project? Is it because they're facing a you know, marital breakdown or a health issue? It's, it comes down to those personal things. Um, the, the thing that I've seen a lot in the online space is that people want to sell because they have an exciting new project. And okay. a lot of the times they'll say, I need money because I need money to put into the new project. And my my advice to buyers is always, well, you know what? They're also going to need money to live on. And so if you structure a deal where you can be paying them every month, then they can be living on your payments while they work on their new business. Right? So it's, it's very easy to, to counterpoint that, that argument that I need money because I'm starting something new. The question then is, do they trust that you're actually going to deliver the money? Right? Sure. That's true. So, okay, that makes sense. So if you if you are already a profitable Amazon FBA operator and and they can see, yeah, you can take on my products, my products should continue to do well. Um, and you already have a cash flow of your own. So even if you agreed to there's there's different ways to do this over over time in the future. You can do a royalty earnout where you give a certain percentage of sales for a certain period of time to them. Their cash flow could oscillate under that arrangement as you have peaks and valleys. You could come to a fixed price. You could say, I'm going to buy your Amazon FBA business for 150 grand. I'll give you this down payment and then I'll give you a fixed amount per month for the next five years, right? Now we have an even cash flow that isn't really related to the performance of their products. They can see that you're profitable. It's, you know, they can then say, okay, well, I can budget on that amount of money. I can make that work. So there's, there's a couple of different ways that you can set it up. You asked about, um, about the investor, right? Mm -hmm. So again, there's a bunch of different ways that you can, you can set this up with an investor. I had actually had a conversation yesterday with someone we were talking about a publicly traded uh, stock that we have here in Canada. It's a royalty income trust from A&W restaurants. So 20 years ago or more, they decided to create something called an income trust where they would take 3% of the top line revenues from the individual restaurants and give it to this income trust and forever. And so investors were like, oh, wow, I'd love to have, you know, 3% of every hamburger sold forever. And so they raised, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars from this. And now that money goes to those investors. You could do the same kind of thing with an investor of your own. You could say, I'm going to acquire this business. This is the past track record of this business. If you will provide me with X number of dollars today, I'll give you a percentage of the revenue from those items in perpetuity. And then I think you said it was your sister. 
then she would be paying X amount today. Oh, it's my grandmother. Yeah. Oh, your grandmother. Oh, yeah. So your grandmother would give you X amount today and then get a piece. She would be buying equity in the SKU numbers in your store, basically. And then that's, every, that's a every really time, good idea. Yeah. Every time you have an acquisition, you could just do that. Now, as you said, over time, maybe the, the money runs out, but there's probably a pretty good opportunity that she'll get her money back and then something more. Right. And then there's risk to her in that situation, obviously. Um, but you know, the other way to do it is to, is to do it as debt. You know, she lends the money to you, you pay it back, but then you're, you're obligated to pay that back regardless of what happens in your business. And, and again, my concern is that Amazon changes something. And so this is the advantage of equity partners is that they're bearing part of the risk that the sky will fall or whatever and, and things get messed up in the future. That's a really good idea. I did, I completed your uh, business buyer advantage course and mm -hmm. I completed it all last week, including the distressed and the recession. And you mentioned the royalties, how you could, there was the one where you did that whole spreadsheet where you had the different ways to structure a deal. Uh, and I think it was the recession or maybe it was the distressed uh, videos, but anyway, um, one of them, the royalties, as you mentioned just a minute ago, the 10 year royalty at 12%, if I remember correctly, was it really, I noticed from, for the Amazon business, realm. You can actually see this. You go on Empire Flippers, which is one mm -hmm. of those online brokerage firms. And they, if you scroll down, when you click on a listing, you'll see the um, monthly revenue and profits. And you will find them just all over the place, yeah. all over the place. They swing all the time. It's so difficult. And I, even if you have tons of SKUs, it still swings. It happens in my business all the time. One month I'll be up tons and the next month it'll be half. And it's just kind of random the reason it does that. And so the royalty idea actually would really solve that, that problem mm -hmm. instead of having it consistent each month because you don't know what's going to happen each month. That royalty actually would be a, a really big help. That's very interesting. Well, well, what you're doing is you're just taking the, the, the sales volatility risk and passing it back over to the investor. And, and if the product is a home run and you happen to sell it for the next decade, well, then they're going to really profit from that. But again, risk return, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they expose themselves to the cash flow risk and they could end up with some real winners or some that don't do so well, unfortunately. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Income trust idea. I'd never even hadn't heard of that. Well, it's, it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's the same thing as a royalty. It's the same thing as a franchise fee. If you were to open a franchise restaurant, you have to pay a percentage of your sales to the franchise or it's the same concept. It's just framed in different ways, you know, as, as people create these deals. That's a good idea. All right. I like that a lot too. Yeah. You actually had a lot of, a lot of good thoughts. That's very good. But you mentioned things like empire flippers and the monthly profit. There's, there's a few other things I'd like to cover on this. Um, the average for small businesses, you know, main street businesses being sold is of somewhere around 2.3 or 2.4 times seller's discretionary earnings. And about a year and a half ago, I had a conversation with a guy in Australia, Jared Krause, who's got a podcast all about buying online businesses. And at that time, Jared told me that there's the online businesses are usually priced in terms of monthly profit multiples. And so he was saying that they were selling for like 30 times and which actually aligns perfectly with that 2.3, mm -hmm. 2.4 times in the 
of annual results um, in the regular small business world. But since then, I spoke with them just a little while ago, that multiple now has been pushed up in excess of 40, 45 times. And what's, what's happening is that a lot of people are getting sucked into this notion of the online businesses, the, you know, location independence and all this kind of thing. And especially with the smaller ones where people can pool the money together themselves, like up to 50 grand or whatever, the prices are rising because people are chasing this, this dream. And I think that those little ones maybe not, may not be where the opportunity is for you because there's a lot of buyer competition there. A lot of people who don't really know what they're doing, getting the money together or borrowing the money against their house or something, and they're just paying. And then they're getting this thing where maybe they don't even know what to do with it fully, but they're, they're, they're building up the prices at the small end of the market. Um, the other thing too, is that I've never seen an online business properly normalized for the value of the owner's time put into the okay. business. Okay. Right? And so you just, you have to be very cognizant of, of what you're getting into in particular, if there's more than one owner. So the, the client of mine in the adventure group right now is looking at buying a SaaS business where there were two owners. One guy was like a sales guy. Another guy was a developer guy. Both of them were taking far less than a fair market wage out of the business, which of course inflates the profitability when you look at the income statement. Yeah. That's interesting. In other words, they were worth, from what I, from what I learned from your course, they were worth more on the labor market than what they were getting out of their business. Okay. Right. And, and as, as someone who is buying a business, you're interested in what is the real return out of this business after I pay all the bills, you know, you're not going to be able to find someone willing to work for half price. That's true. <laughs> that's right? true. Yeah. But, but they're working for half price. That's true. That's right? true. Yeah, that's so, exactly true. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. All right. Um, uh, I do know when... You're exactly right because some of these people, they won't tell you how many actual hours they're working on it. And what, now I have the advantage of been doing this for seven years. So I know what they got to do every day, what they need to do every day to keep it going. And mm -hmm. uh, really these days, ironically, I said growing is a big part, but actually in a way, because I told you that's on average three to five years, you're almost having to launch products just to keep your revenues because some drop off all the time. You're having to launch more to just keep up with that that kind of oh. treadmill. And so that's actually where a lot of work comes from, finding new ideas, doing pictures, creating great product pages. And I've hired several VAs and I've created a whole system um, and delegated a lot. And so it keeps it going, but that still increased costs having to do that. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of processes in it. So um, that's another aspect I just wanted to mention for some of your listeners. Well, what you're describing is a real business. You know, like any, any business out there has to be innovating and finding new products and re-merchandising and redecorating the store and like, like all the stuff you're talking about. And so often, um, you know, people who get into this online stuff or if they find one product and put it up on Amazon FBA, um, they, they get involved in this simplified entrepreneurship where they look at the one product and they say, if I can buy it for 10 and sell it for 25, I'm making this huge margin but they don't consider the expense side, right? And so sure. the fact that they had to buy toner for their printer at home because they're printing labels or, or they're printing something for the business, all that stuff is just comes out of their household budget. They don't recognize it as a proper business expense. And, and they trick themselves into thinking that they're making a lot more money than they really are. When you get to a certain size, you have to be more formal. You know, you have to 
start to account for the fact that the, you know, your printer toner is a real business expense because you want to claim that on your taxes, right? You want to use it to drop your, your profit. And, um, and then it becomes hard because then you realize it's not, it's not just about that gross margin. It's about the net, not gross profit, it's net profit. And um, so this just gave me another idea. Instead of going out there with a program to acquire Amazon FBA businesses, you could even frame it that it's, an, it's a program to acquire Amazon FBA product pages or listings. Mm, true. And, and so somebody who has an Amazon business with many different products, maybe they just need some cash. And so they could sell you just certain products out of their, their portfolio. Or that would work too. That would work too, because a lot of them, because technically that's, if I buy an Amazon business, that's all I'm really buying is their product pages and their suppliers, their supplier right. list, essentially. That's a good idea. Yeah. So it, you, you could slice and dice this in different ways, depending on what someone is interested in. I know that, um, for example, in the secondary mortgage note business, which I know is, a, is a, quite a big thing in the Western states, like around Oklahoma, where people will sell a property buyer can't get financing, the seller ends up holding a mortgage note. And then there's a whole investment community of people who will buy those notes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will do what's called a partial. They'll, they'll buy the next 20 payments on the note. And then the note gets assigned to the investor. The guy gets cash up front. But then after 20 payments, the note comes back to the original owner and he keeps collecting after that. Right? So there's, even though it's one asset, you know, there's different ways to acquire it, different ways to slice and dice it, depending on what the seller needs. And so when you're talking with these people, that should be one of your first questions is what do you need and why? Because maybe there's a way that I can make a deal. Maybe if they need a huge amount of money, maybe you don't see that value in their business, but you say, look, I can't help you with all that, but this is what I could do. I could acquire these three items. I could give you this amount down. I'll give you this amount from the sales over the next three years or what have you. Could be all kinds of different ways of looking at it. I like that. It's a bit of financial engineering based on what they need. Yeah. Essentially. That's like, that's a really, really good idea too. But I think, <clears throat> you know, it, it's got to be based on the future because, you know, who knows? Amazon could change something. Um, you know, I think that someone was telling me that at one time, um, you were allowed to buy Google AdWords ads for Amazon affiliate links. And there was a certain arbitrage where some Amazon products paid a high enough affiliate and the Google keywords were cheap enough in the AdWords system that you could spend money on Google AdWords just to drive traffic to that one Amazon affiliate link and actually be profitable. Mm-hmm. And there, there were people doing this And then one day Google said, you can no longer be doing this. You can't just advertise that link. And all of those businesses ended overnight. Oh man, I've heard of stories like that. I do know that Amazon, me being there seven years, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. I saw stuff that Amazon will glitch 
for weeks, months on end, they'll glitch with, you can't put a new product page up very efficiently, all kinds of weird stuff. They also change the rules all the time. You'll create a product page in a certain way, a certain format. And a year later, they don't like that format anymore and they'll suppress your listings until you fix it. And so you, when they suppress it, you really just don't sell anything. And so I've seen all kinds of stuff. Sometimes their algorithm, when they, they mess with their search algorithm, which is supposed to be really sophisticated, I think it's called A9, and they might be going to the next version, but sometimes it's been in recently. In fact, there's been a lot of reports. I'm on a lot of online communities that sell on Amazon. Sure. So I'm part of all these mastermind groups and there's been a lot of people complain that, Oh my goodness, all of a sudden my rankings just disappeared on certain important keywords. You can track that stuff and the ranking is gone. It's just gone. And then it'll jump back up to the normal ranking two, three days later and then go back away again. And so it's, it's completely glitched for a lot of people and their businesses are, getting hit. So I've seen that. And I think you're exactly right. A person who wants to buy these businesses would have to have some kind of earnout or royalty system based upon the future performance of that business in order to, in my honest assessment of the situation, that's about the only way to do it safely without risking your everything you put into it completely, your net worth even if you, that's, so that's the most intelligent way. I wanted to ask you related to, um, is it, how would a person know if these kind of industries, because, you know, I have an investing background and I'll mm -hmm. see certain industries get really overheated. Their multiples in the stock market, for example, you'll see multiples just insanely high. You know, I've seen cases where they're literally a thousand, thousand times earnings and, um, you know, 10 times sales and all this stuff on the stock exchanges. And you can tell when an industry is overheated. It's just everybody's throwing their money at it like crazy. Is there a way to do that in private markets like this? I keep wondering if Amazon FBA is overheated. Like you said, I've noticed the same thing. I've noticed the multiples just go up over the last three, mm -hmm. four, five years. I know. And then lots of people are paying all cash at closing for these businesses, which I know is dangerous. I've been in this business. I would not do that. Because you just don't know what's going to happen. It, the, the, the problem is, is that every business deal is private. And, and so there are some windows into what is happening in these markets, like uh, the IBBA, International Business Brokers Association. They put out a quarterly report on what's going on in the market. Uh, if you look at the details in the fine print, though, it's a relatively small uh, sample of brokers submitting data. And sometimes their quarterly report is based on a few hundred transactions. And, and so it's, it's a small look because these are the brokers who are members of the IBBA and they're, they're probably following probably the most stringent set of standards as far as comparable numbers. And, and this is the other problem is there are publicly available there are private databases you have to pay to subscribe to. Uh, I subscribe to some for my valuation work. And you'll do a search. You'll say, um, you know, fish and chip restaurants with sales between two hundred and $400,000. And it'll give you, them all to you. And then you'll immediately, just by looking down the list, see a whole bunch of statistical outliers. Numbers that just don't seem to make sense with respect to the main group. And it's, it's because the database is reporting back revenue, which you can pretty much trust, you know, what was the sales of the business, but then they also report back either EBITDA or seller's discretionary cash flow. In order for you to trust normalized EBITDA or seller's discretionary cash flow, you have to trust that the person who handled the file properly normalized the income statement, mm. which they may not have. May not have. Okay. Right. And so oftentimes it's like some newer people in the industry will just do an average. But, but that's really not what you have to do. You actually have to look at each one that looks like a comparable business, 
look to see if there's any notes and then look, you know, try to get any information you can. And if it just seems totally wacky, you just have to realize it's, it's a hot, you know, it's radioactive. You just can't put it into your numbers. You exclude it. And you have to look at the ones that seem reasonable. And then maybe you average them or, or um, look at the mean number or whatever. Um, and so the, there is data out there. Sometimes it's dangerous to use. Sometimes it doesn't tell the whole story. The other data out there that is very dangerous is some of the business for sale marketplaces will offer reports. They'll sell a premium membership and then they go, what do we have to do to make it premium? Hmm. Let's give people information in advance, in advance of others. So you get early listing you know, stuff. And then maybe let's add on some reporting tools. Here's the problem though, is that the reporting is often based on asking price. So it'll show you what the asking prices of business have, businesses have been. And for someone who's been in this business for a long time, I can tell you sometimes asking prices are overstated by two to 300%. So, so what ends up happening is that people look at average asking price for a certain industry based on the revenue and the, the cash flow. And some of the listings on these marketplaces are done by individual business owners who don't understand normalization or, or how to, to do this work. They see cash flow. Well, what does it mean to them? Is it, is it the total amount of money they take out of the business? Is it uh, their net income from their tax return? Is it, you know, some kind of EBITDA calculation that they've done? Who knows, right? So they, they come up with some number, they put it in. And now that data is part of a report showing other people, this is what businesses are, are asking or being sold for. And as the errors create this bias towards overpricing, new people coming into the market, see those reports. And of course, what it does is it encourages them to overprice. So it just becomes a, I don't know, it's a negative feedback loop causing price or the, the asking price to keep being pushed upward. Wow. Okay. So to inoculate myself from that, it sounds like I, you said it in the course, business buyer advantage, you draw a line in the sand yes. and you decide what you're willing to do and you're not willing to do based on your experiences and your research. Yeah. Is that basically, okay. And and the, because the thing is, if, if let's say I'm trying to sell you an Amazon FBA business, I could say, you know, Cody, I want a million dollars. You look at it and you go, well, David, like I'll write you a check for a hundred grand and I'll pay you what we believe will be another 600 grand over the next six or seven years. Right. Okay. Well, I'm like, I don't want that. I want my million dollars. So I could then decide to go and try to find that person who's going to spend a million dollars. And maybe I don't find them, but I find someone who wants to move to Bali and they just sold their house in California and they're willing to write me a check for 800 grand. Well, of course I'm going to take that deal over your deal, but you don't want to compete with that buyer. True. Right. That's true. I don't want to you, you don't want to do what they've done. So, so you let them make that crazy dangerous move and you just let that one go away. And, and you, you realize these are my limits. This is what makes sense for me. And then it becomes a question of deal flow. Okay. Right. And, and which, which usually means trying to get yourself ahead of the market, ahead of the brokers, which means trying to, you said you had access to communities of people who are doing Amazon FBA. Well, you start talking to those people and you say, when, when something happens and you decide you want to sell, come and talk with me. Cause I'm, I'm acquiring. 
and I've got a way of doing deals that doesn't involve banks and I can close quickly. Okay. Well, that's a good idea too. I didn't think about framing it that way. It's interesting you say that every time I've mentioned to some of these groups that aren't interested in buying and selling businesses, they're just Amazon FBA groups talking about their businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a couple occasions just by chance I made some comment about I'd looked at this buying one business and so on. And I've had people private message me through Facebook or whatnot going, Hey, would you be interested in looking at my business? I'm thinking about selling. And that it happened twice. And I, it, I wouldn't even try and, and to my amazement, that was the kind of come out of the woodwork. That's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I, I actually have another idea that would probably work too in directly contacting Amazon FBA businesses. Okay. That's, that's pretty helpful. So I'd have to kind of stay up ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, see, you see your advantage is you know exactly what you want to buy. And most of the people that I work with, they, they have some idea of the type of business they want, but they don't quite know. And most of the work we, I do with them is like trying to narrow it down. Like, because if you say, I want to buy a machine shop in Indiana, well, now you can find them all. Right. <laughs> yeah, like like sure. you, you can now you can open the yellow pages or go to different online sites and you can find every machine shop in Indiana. Like it's not hard. But if you don't know quite what kind of business you want, then how do you find them? Right. That's and, true. And, and so you, by creating a relationship in advance of someone realizing they want to sell, that's when you have a chance to get the business before that home seller in California with the 800,000 has a chance to write a check. That's good. That makes a lot of sense to me too. Yeah. I'm going to ponder that too. And I have noticed, um, so it sounds like it is within the range just for me to go back to the pricing 10, 15, 20% down and then having the seller carry pretty much the rest of it back on some kind of earn out, some kind of royalty, mm-hmm. some kind of system like that sounds like a good idea for my industry to keep my risk down and there'll still be enough sellers that would agree to that, that I won't be just, I mean, I imagine maybe I may have to contact 10 of them and, and make 10 offers, but one will probably accept at some point out of 10. Yeah. Maybe. Well, and, and exactly because if, if nobody will take you up on those deals, it, it simply means that none of them are ready to meet the criteria that work for you. Okay. You, you can't go out and do things that don't work for you. You can't be negotiating against your own best interest. And, and you know that uh, what it takes to go and develop a new product. And that's kind of like a, sometimes it's a benchmark. What does it cost for me to create something new versus acquire? There's a guy in, in the adventure group who's in an industry and he knows it costs him 32 cents per dollar of revenue to organically generate via salespeople when he looks at the cost of their employment, the cost of the compensation package, the cost of the commission he pays to them, he knows it costs him 32 cents. So if he can acquire businesses and bring the customers over for anything less than that, then he knows he's getting a bargain in competing with his own sales department for business growth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's what informs him. If he has an opportunity, but it's going to cost him over 50 cents per dollar of revenue, then he's like, well, I can get that cheaper with my own salespeople. And so, so he backs off from that because he knows it doesn't work for him. Um, there's a video, an older one on my YouTube channel, which talks about multiple offer strategies. So that's something you may want to incorporate into your, into your program too, because you could say, look, there's A, B, and C program. 
we do it this way, this way, or this way, depending on how much money you need down. So maybe if someone wants a greater down payment, they can do that, but they're, the tail of the deal is, is smaller for them. Right? Okay. Yeah. Multiple offer deals that, um, for example, one extreme is not, not necessarily in this case, but it could be like an all cash offer, but it's really low price compared yes. to what they're asking. And the other extreme would be a really low down payment, but a nice long owner finance kind of structure. Yeah. Uh, an earn out or something. And, and something that's <clears throat> interesting about making s- different offers to someone is that you can glean information um, based on how they respond and to which one. Mm. Okay. So if they yeah. reply back to the long tail offer, then it indicates their optimism about the future of that product. If they're want, if they're like, no, cash on the barrel, I got to go to a move into Costa Rica, then then you can be a little more concerned about what they might see that you don't. They're signaling something in a manner of speaking. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's, they're signaling ignorance if they've just never done a deal before and they don't know how it's done and they, you know, they think that selling a business is like selling a house. That sometimes that's what they're signaling, but you know the, if they spend any amount of time looking around online, if they stumble across my YouTube channel or whatever, then, then they're going to eventually realize this is, this is the way it's done. It makes complete sense. And that makes sense too, that I would just draw that line in the sand and just know that I have to make this offer or better, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, or else I'm just taking too much risk on, or the cost is just too high. I could just launch the products myself or organically try to grow. Okay. That makes complete sense. I was going to ask you something that's kind of random. Um, I had seen this one, one way to structure deals related to that dual offer kind of thing you're talking about dual or triple offer, I guess. Um, This is so out there, but I was curious 10 times EBITDA adjusted EBITDA, but no cash at closing and based on an earnout. So if it ever falls apart or anything in the future, have you ever heard of any extreme offer on one? In other words, it's like, if you structure it right, you're going to make money and you take no risk on because you didn't have to put any money into the deal. And as long as you don't personally guarantee the note or anything like that to a seller, have you ever heard anything like that working? Um, I've heard a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of people like that essentially is, is what, you know, when people talk about buying a business for no money, that's the kind of thing they're talking about. Okay. And, and here's the reality is that if, somebody came along who was a new guy off the street who didn't have any Amazon FBA experience, there'd be almost no chance on earth that anyone would ever take that deal from him. Right. But where you are actually a player in the industry and you can show people that you know what you're doing and you're successful, there could in fact be an opportunity for somebody to agree to that. So, so that, that could be an extreme offer is, is the highest possible valuation, but they have to hold paper on the whole deal. Now, are people going to be interested in that? It has to be a person who doesn't need any money at all. And in Business Buyer Advantage, there's an example of the guy with the water business who uh, he, the, the seller asked him to finance like, 50% of the business, he came back saying he'd finance 75% of it over 10 years at 2% interest at, with a higher price than what the, what the offer was. And the, the buyer said, oh my God, I, I would never agree to pay so much, but I can't get money under those terms. 
So he agreed to do it. And the seller um, basically only got a quarter of his money and there was land and everything in this deal. There were a lot of tangible assets. Um, the seller got an, a, basically a payment with only 2% interest over 10 years, but he got more money for his business than, than he was, he thought, or I thought, or the buyer thought he was going to pay. He got more because he was willing to finance over 10 years at 2%. But from the seller's point of view, the deal worked because he had asked his local banker, if I brought in, you know, 400 grand, what would I be able to earn in interest? And he was told, you know, half a percent. So, so the sellers from his point of view is he's earning four times the rate of interest he would have if he had just gotten all the money and deposited it. And his problem was that he didn't have retirement savings. He wanted some kind of annuity that he didn't believe he would outlive. He was already in his eighties. And so he thought if I can get a check every month for 10 years, um, then that'll take care of me. Mm, okay. Right? Yeah. So, so it entirely had to do with the situation of the, of the seller and what they wanted. So, you know, talking about location independence and stuff, if there's somebody out there who is working 50, 60 hours a week on an Amazon FBA business, who is earning good money from it, and maybe it is worth more than a million dollars, you know, based on the cash flow, that person knows that they could just move to another country and run the business, but that just means they'll be working 50 or 60 hours from another country and probably overnight because of time zones, right? <laughs> That's true. That's which, true. which they won't want to do. But if they know that they can put the business in the hands of someone capable, maybe they'd be willing to do that. And then they don't have to work for the next 10 years. They can just collect those checks every month. Now they really can enjoy that place where they're going to live. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It's entirely about what that seller wants. Okay. And it, well, our sellers are sellers pretty, I've, I've done a little bit of negotiation with sellers. Uh, it's sometimes hard to read if they're trying to hold things back in terms of, you know, how negotiation works. Sometimes people want to hold things back what they really want because they're going to try whatever. But if I guess if I build enough rapport with them, use like Chris Voss, I'm sure you've heard of him, the negotiation mm -hmm. guy techniques, things like that really build good uh, empathy, uh, good connection with them that if I just ask them, what would you want and what's your situation? Are they usually pretty, pretty straightforward with you about that kind of stuff? Only after you become friends that okay. you, you have to, you have to approach this from a collaborative point of view. And, and a lot of stuff out there about negotiation is this, it's, it's uh, what's the word that attorneys use? it's like confrontational or it's, it's, it's win lose. It's, you know, mm -hmm. everything I get, you lose kind of thing. And it's like that Donald Trump book from way back in the day, the art of the deal. Mm -hmm. The problem with that book, which Chris Voss says, the problem with that book is that everybody who finishes having that done to them, they don't want to ever come back and do another deal. Right. Sure. Because for everything I won, you lost. Right. Yeah. And you can use all kinds of tactics that you can learn about, about negotiation to uh, put pressure and, you know, kind of get what you want. But then the problem with doing that when you buy a business is a few months into it, you might need that person's help. <laughs> That's true. And if they, if they feel like you've burned them and totally taken advantage of them, then they're not going to want to be helpful. Right. Absolutely. And so, so the, the, the framework that you want to lay out is a, is a collaborative one.
So it's, here are some different ways that I can help you get a fair price for your business while I acquire a business that's going to make me money in the future, right? I can help you get a fair price for your business if this thing I'm acquiring is going to lead me to have income and security and wealth as well. So it's got to work for both of us. And so now how are we going to do that? And, and so you work together on it. And, you know, now if he, he's saying, well, I just want all cash on closing. And you say, well, you know, if I have to give you all cash on closing, that's going to reduce my cash reserves. It's going to expose me to more risk. I'm not now not so certain I'm going to be able to make money off of it uh, because none of that future sales risk is being shared with you. And so I feel that I'm in danger, which means I'm still willing to pay you all cash, but the price has to be way lower, mm. right? And so as you have you build that relationship and you're talking with that person, um, a couple of things are going to happen. And this is something I talk about in Business Buyer Advantage if they're not willing to bear any future risk, it can mean a few things. It can mean that they don't believe in you. It can mean that they um, don't believe in the business, or it can mean that they know they've given you some information, which is not accurate. Oh. Right. And yeah. so, so that in itself can be a tell. Um, I've only of the real world businesses I've had my hands on, there's only been a couple that didn't have any kind of seller note. Like it's, it's the rarity and almost always because of a third party requirement. So a franchise deal where the franchisor forbade uh, anyone to have any kind of seller financing in the deal or the buyer and seller um, uh, knew each other quite well and the buyer was willing to make a cash deal uh, for whatever reason to pay for the business. But usually those strong relationships lead to the other extreme to a very high degree of seller financing. Mm. Now that's interesting. Um, so I'd mentioned empire flippers earlier and I'd talked to them. Uh, they had contacted me the last few weeks, actually. I was still going through your course when I started talking to them and they had given me statistics on there. And I don't know if I should trust some of these brokerage firms or not and stuff they give me. For starters, they said I only get about an hour conversation with the seller. And I assume right there that I'm going to have a lot of problems building the rapport we were talking, you were talking about building a connection with them and, and the broker will be on the call too. So it's mm -hmm. going to be kind of a weird scenario. Uh, it's going to be difficult to connect with them. And so I assume that would be a big problem for uh, making offers where they can trust me and we get to feel uncomfortable with each other. The, the, uh, uh, and I've only ever really heard good things about empire flippers. I've never heard anything bad about them. Um, but they have a process which is designed for expediency and getting the highest price with the highest down payment for their client. And they, the client and the broker mutually have an interest in a high down payment and that's the commission is paid at closing. Mm. Right. And so, so those are their, what they want to get out of it. They have a marketing machine that is functioning to bring as many buyers as possible to the table so that they can find that guy who just sold his house in California for 800 grand. Right. That that's what they're trying to do. And the value proposition that a broker brings to a business seller is, Hey, yeah, our service is expensive but we're going to be able to bring all of these different buyers. And because we're going to have many buyers competing 
with each other to get your business, we're going to be able to get you the highest price or the biggest down payment. And so when you're dealing with a broker, like that's the environment that you're in. It's going to be a more competitive environment with other buyers who do have money, who are willing to do deals. And so it's, it's less advantageous to you. Okay. Okay. And, and funny thing is I have money I just, and I could pay all cash for some of those businesses, but I have just, like I said, I've been in the investing world a long time. It took me 15 mm-hmm. years to finally understand really what I was doing. And the number one rule to being successful at it is managing your downside, managing your potential risk on a deal and how much of your net worth you risk on any one deal, that combination how much you're risking and how much of that net worth you're risking of your net worth you're risking on a deal will decide your long-term success in the investing world. Absolutely. Every time. You know what, Cody, I I love this because there's so much, um, you know, what is often termed success porn on the internet where (laughs) people are like, yeah, yeah, you know, 10 X this or whatever. And, and, um, and, and they're, they're all saying like, you can't, play not to lose. You have to play to win. And that means taking risks. And it usually means buying whatever they're selling. <laughs> and, but, but if you listen to guys like Warren Buffett, they'll, they'll tell you that one of the biggest reasons they're successful is because they've managed to avoid losing more than others. That's right. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Like you avoid, avoid the deals where you, you know, you lose a bunch of money. That's going to help you with your success. That's exactly right. Sam Zell, uh, who's, famous too. They call him the grave dancers, this old 1980s um, nickname, but he wrote a book called, am I being too subtle? And it was, I was listening to an audio and I was amazed how many times he mentioned managing risk in that book. And at that time I'd already learned enough in the investing world to go, that's the real secret. And he just talked about it so much in that book and you, and somebody knew, and I used to be new, I, I would have missed that. But now that I've done it a long time and I've done all this testing on different trading systems and all this mm-hmm. stuff, all this mathematical stuff, you see it. You can see it. The amount you're risking of your total portfolio. And if you don't cut your losses short on trades and investments, and it doesn't matter where you're buying businesses, you're trading a single stock. If you don't manage that risk all the time and position size right of your total portfolio, your life is going to be rough and you'll end up going broke real quick if you're not careful. So it's, it's definitely one of the secrets. It's one of the reasons I love your programs and what you, mm. and I've been listening to you for years on YouTube as I was growing my business and you talked about risk many times. And I really like that. And cause a lot of people don't even think about it. They don't even talk about it. Experts don't even mention it and never even think about it. Well, well, thank you. But um, you know, I've lived through it. I've, mm. I've put money into businesses and had it go South I've, I've made investments and things and had them gone south. And, you know, thank goodness when I was in my twenties and I didn't have a lot of money, I bought like stock market stocks that had, that went south. Right. And fortunately didn't lose a lot because I didn't have much back then. Um, It's, it's yeah. Managing risk is important. Yeah. It sure is. Super important. Okay. That's very good, David. Um, I wanted to see if, I'm sorry. I could sit and talk to you for 12 hours about this and ask you a billion questions. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm asking you more questions that you might want to go ahead and just stop me at any no, point. We have, we have some heart. time left. It's okay. Okay. Um, I was kind of trying to, something that was related to, I had five thoughts at once. We were talking about the empire flippers and they had stated, and it matched what you said, they had stated that they'd actually given them a report where they showed about 45% of their Amazon FBA businesses were, uh, had earnouts connected to them. The other 55% were what they said, all cash deals. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was extreme because I'd taken your course and you had said that in fact, majority of the time 
there's owner uh, owner financing or earnouts royalty something like that connected to a deal so um, I assume in most that's probably one reason you would say try to get ahead so, of the brokers. So, so hang on though, hang on though. Okay. So their report is from their perspective. True. Okay. So, so just because um, a deal doesn't have any seller financing doesn't mean that it doesn't have financing. Ah, true. That's true. Okay. So, so, and this is why I say there's a real big demarcation line when the sale price goes above like 50 or 60 grand, because below that amount of money, people can piece together lines of credit or savings or what have you, and they can make those cash offers, but there could still be people borrowing for that money. Right. And so the down payment that they have could be quite low. Right. And, and, um, the deals that don't go through the broker, we have no idea about. True. That's true. Well, this markets, you did say in the training, you said that uh, you would, you're hard pressed to call the business acquisition, merger acquisition, a marketplace. You would yeah. say it's because there's so much variation in it. It, it. Every business pretty much is unique. I think that these, the online businesses are probably like I would say that Amazon FBA businesses are probably analogous to like convenience stores, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of convenience stores. They're all very similar, right? And they, and you can start, you can become an expert on convenience stores and, and really learn that business inside and out, just like Amazon FBA, because you're all kind of doing just the same thing, but there actually are not a lot of verticals like that, you know, gas stations, dry cleaners, uh, pizza takeout pizzerias like there's there you can name them where there's many hundreds or thousands of them that are all kind of the same but then once you get out of those kind of cookie cutter sort of types of businesses the variations are huge mm, that's good i wanted to ask you about your business buyer adventure program sure. and I, i'm gathering i probably would be because i'd be part of your group and you would be a part of that. And I get to talk to you with some regularity on that kind of stuff. Um, do you guys, I don't know you had, I think you said 12 extra modules um, in that so, program. In addition to the business buyer advantages modules, you have the adventure had extra modules. It, it's a, the way that it works when people join business buyer adventure, it's a group coaching program. And so it's already, the group is already functioning. So how do new people get in and get up to speed? So when you join, there's a workbook with 12 sections. So it's not, like the modules of business buyer advantage, which are like video tutorial lessons in, in this workbook, it's like stuff for self analysis. So it's uh, talking about your strengths and weaknesses and your technical skills and your experience. And a lot of it is driving towards what kind of business is right for you. Right. And then you actually put in numbers into a spreadsheet and you look at your net worth and you look at your available resources and this, all of this ties in because the majority of people who join, they want to buy a business, but they're not quite sure which one it's going to be. Or they think they have an idea. And when they go through this process, they realize that there are other things, right? And so I had this happen recently with someone who had come from a background of being on the sales side of IT and software. And a lot of what they thought they were going to get into had to do with technology or installation or service, et cetera. But when they went through this process, at the end of it, there's a meeting with me where we review everything. And I said, you know what? You would be ideal as the owner of a manufacturer's representative agency. 
Mm. And they didn't even know that kind of business existed. Mm. Like, like they just weren't aware. But that's to me, that's where all of the all of the different experience and, and everything led to was because their concern was always it was never the sales. Their concern was delivery and product and everything else. And I said, well, why don't you just get rid of all that? Mm. Just, just be the person who makes a sale. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how you do it. You know, like a manufacturer's rep represents different brands in different regions or areas or what have you. And they, they just focus on the sale. So, yeah. So you go through these modules or you go through the workbook and then you're able to start with your prospect and your suspect list and you join the calls and we do regular calls. There are special expert guest speakers that come to the group. There's a new one every month and all that stuff is archived. So what a lot of people will do when they first join is they'll listen to the last five or six calls to kind of be on top of what's being talked about in the next one. And then they'll go back to number one. And then they'll, they'll start listening while they go jogging and they commute and they at workout or whatever. And they'll just listen to all the stories because the reality that some of the surprises people is that some of these negotiations for these deals happen over the course of a year. Hmm. And, and the communication between the buyer and seller keeps breaking down. The example that, that we shared here today where I said, you know, you can make an offer and someone could say, no, I want the million dollars you can listen to that happen for a couple of people where the conversation breaks down. And while the buyer or the seller thinks they found their person with a lot of money and then that deal never works out. And then they they circle back and they start talking again. And then they, then something else happens and they stop talking and then they start talking again. Or, you know, one deal that just closed uh, down in Georgia, the, the buyer and seller, had a pretty good conversation It broke down a couple of times. Then they decided they were going to do a deal and the relationship had developed so strongly what they were supposed to close the deal. And then the pandemic hit and then there was a delay with banks and then there was a problem with the floor plan financing. And then there was one problem after another. And the two of them, buyer and seller worked through every one of these problems and eventually the deal got done. The seller never said, got fed up and said, I'm through with this you know, you can't close the deal, blah, 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 because the seller was fully informed as to the buyer's situation and had come to the point where he realized that this was the right buyer for his business, that this was the person that was going to be successful. And this is what the deal was going to look like. And it was going to be tough. It was going to be tough. It's always hard to get financing for a business and to make everything fall into place. People get the impression that buying a business is like buying a house because most of what you see as far as stories, you see the end result. You, you just listen to the guy get on stage at a TEDx talk or whatever. He says, ah, I sold my business for a hundred million dollars. Right. And it doesn't really show what went into making the deal. And those big deals that you see most often, like the hundred million dollar deal, it's all a bunch of people that get together at a table who all speak MBA MBA is a dialect, right? It's like you go to business school and you develop this dialect and, and, the, and these big companies, the buyers and the sellers, they're all lined up and they're all talking this language and they all have a, a, a mutual platform of understanding what the other party wants because they're all looking at it. They're all emotionally divested from it. They're all doing a deal, right? And they're just doing their job. When you buy a business and you're dealing with the owner who built it up from nothing, none of those characteristics are in play. 
That's true. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about something that they're intensely emotionally connected with. And, you know, if, if the relationship isn't built in the proper way, then saying anything critical about the business that might require a price adjustment is directly insulting to that business owner. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the only way that that business seller is going to be able to come to terms that work for you is if they can actually see things from your point of view, which requires empathy. And it's, it's difficult for most people to truly empathize with people until they get to know them. That's true. I have an MBA too, by the way, and I know you do. And what you said about it, where it teaches you to be a good mid-level manager in some giant companies, absolutely true. And it was, it didn't help me a lot in my entrepreneurial endeavors here. So that's very true. And it does teach you that speak stuff that I know the big fancy words and all that stuff. It's exactly true. Uh, Real quick, I wanted to ask you too, you had mentioned in the program about um, putting your buyer resume. Yeah. uh, and I, I, I was building that. I was thinking a lot about that. I was also wondering, just wondering if, if as I contact these potential sellers, if I should build a website with videos of me kind of explaining what I do and what I'm looking for, quick videos, not big, long things. Mm-hmm. And then like a separate video of how to value their honest assessment, how to value their businesses and how I value their businesses, how we work. Would that be a good idea to put links to contacts or do you think a buyer resume, just a sheet would be better document? What are your thoughts on websites? It's a big topic of conversation in the adventure group. Um, in the adventure group, uh, there's a sample buyer resume that, that people use. They customize it to themselves. And I've seen people successfully create a website to promote themselves, the fact that they were acquiring businesses. And unfortunately, I've seen sort of the dark side of that. So a lot of these guys who are, I call them the no money gurus who are selling these expensive programs to teach people that regardless of how broke they are, or if they have a bad credit score, they can buy a business with no money. A lot of these people are being sold packages of pre-written text to go and create these websites. And there's a, there's a fella who's been on my YouTube channel, Clinton Lee in the UK, and he's actually started to, uh, point this out to people is like, here's 25 private equity firms in the UK that all have exactly the same text on their website. Oh, man. Right. And, and, and so, you know, what may have started off as a good idea may not be perceived that way after a while. And okay. so, so I'm of two minds about it. I think that if you're a person and you're a business owner and you're a guy and a seller is going to get to know you and do a business deal with you, then it has to be about you and not pretending that you're a private equity firm or when you're really not. Gotcha. So it would be more of a video. Hi, everybody. My name's Cody. I'm a business owner. I'm not a broker. I'm not a private equity firm. I'm not, I'm just a business owner who's looking to buy businesses to add to my current business as an investment or something like that. Just real honest and straightforward. And I may have investors come on deals with me and I may not, it may just be me and something like that. Is that, does that sound a little bit more just real honest and straightforward? Yeah, that's the way I would do it. Okay. Okay. That's a good idea. And so uh, the pre-written like uh, written text letters that you send to sellers or to emails, that sounds like that. I know that's probably being beat up from all those, those no money down courses you're seeing everywhere uh, where they're just hammering people with messages. They don't, in my opinion, they don't do it right because a couple of things like the, 
the interest of some of those people in the programs they sell is just in selling the program. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the times the advice that they give is about sounding credible in the moment with the person who's just spent thousands of dollars with them. Mm -hmm. And, and they don't necessarily actually have um, a horse in the race as to the long-term success of that person. Right. And so, um, a lot of the stuff that those guys talk about is start is started to circulate in different circles about things you should do and things you shouldn't do. And, and the, some of it, when I come across it, I'm like, eh, I don't think that that's, I don't think I would do that. Like you, you, the seller who is going to finance a big part of the business that you buy is going to be somebody who ends up in a, with having a relationship with you. I mean, think about it. If you, if you were going to sell me your house for half a million dollars and I said, listen, Cody, um, here's my situation. You know, I've got a good job. I've got some money saved up, but the bank just won't give me a mortgage. And you know, I'm a good guy. Um, is it okay if I give you a hundred grand and give you the rest later? <laughs> right. I mean, who would you do that for? Would Just people that people you know, people you trust, people exactly. you have a relationship with. That's true. People who've proven themselves too that you could you could trust them to to give yeah. you the other eighty percent. Yeah. Right. So so that's what's important is is that you're able to connect with someone and create that. Uh, the best word for it is create a friendship. The when I had my business brokerage office open, um, of the deals I personally did here where I live. Only one of them was an all cash deal. Every other one of them, and it was 36 deals over a three year period. Every other one of them had some degree of seller financing and only one of them ever ended up with any kind of problem after closing where the buyer did not end up paying the full seller note. So statistically, that means the vast majority of those deals, the buyer and seller got along just fine and you know, the, the buyer paid and all that kind of stuff. Now that's great. I'm so glad you brought that up. That was one of my questions I was going to ask is that I don't find a lot of statistics on the success rates of businesses after they've been sold. Cause we talk about, you know, I mentioned my investing and I like to see the average results. I heard a guy named John Bly. I wrote, I've read several books and I've actually mm -hmm. studied some of those other guys courses. And I, I have enough finance background to know some of the stuff they're saying is just not possible. It's tough, impossible to execute, or it's rarely possible to execute. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get lucky, but John Bly wrote a book called cracking the code. If I remember the name, yeah, that's right. And he mentioned that uh, had like a five years after a buyout, 90% of them were still in business of the business buyout. So the business that were bought out. So 10% for some reason went out of business in that five years. I was just curious. Um, and you had actually answered a YouTube question I'd had and you'd stated almost all of those 36 you'd seen were still successful. Um, except for like one or two, which you just said one yeah. of them wasn't successful five years later. What do you think the statistics are for, if a guy who goes by as a business, what's the chances he'll pay off at the very least, he'll pay off the seller to the seller's satisfaction 
at the very least. And preferably where you thrive, you're, as you stated, you prefer businesses that thrive. If you have rough statistics on that, I know it's like drilling oil wells, one out of 10 will fail horribly, one yeah. will be an amazing success and so on and everything in between. But a, a lot of the stuff you'll see talked about, about acquisition <clears throat> not working out, it's for bigger businesses and it has to do with corporate cultures. Okay. Clashing and problems with integrating which usually isn't a problem with a small business acquisition because most of the time it's buyers who will go in and become the owner operator. It's not necessarily a merger or in your case, you're going to acquire someone's FBA business. You're just going to acquire the products. You're not going to be hiring anyone that works over there. That's true. You're just going to be bringing those products over. And so it's more simple in the main street space. Um, but when I think about the businesses I helped to sell, one in particular really comes to mind. It was a laundromat which had sun tanning beds. And it ended up closing after a few years. And what had happened there is that there were two, two partners bought it together. And they had a problem in their partnership. Mm. And then the government here banned suntan beds, uh, artificial tanning for anyone under the age of 18. Oh, wow. And they didn't have a lot of customers under the age of 18. And so they, they didn't lose a lot of customers directly because of that, but there was a halo effect around the rule. So when the government banned tanning beds for people under the age of 18, a lot of people over the age of 18 then figured it must not somehow be healthy. Oh, oh that's interesting. Okay. So, so a lot of people just withdrew themselves from that market as consumers because this rule came out you know, basically, and, um, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that topic, you know, about suntanning, whether it's good, bad, or what have you. But um, I guess there was a concern that people who were not of the age of majority were making decisions that could have long-term health impact. So they, so they just said, you can't do it unless you're an adult. All right. So, but then other adults, you know, made a decision based on that fact that that rule exists, existed. So they ended up closing. And they, they were able to get out of it without any real long-term repercussions and everything because the neighboring business wanted to expand. So they were able to get out without having to deal with uh, being per per pursued for unpaid lease payments or anything like that. And, and, but this is why small businesses sell for relatively low multiples. Mm. They're risky, you know, Governments can change rules with respect to sugar and soda. Coca-Cola won't go out of business. They've got all kinds of other products that don't involve sugar. True. Right? That's you know, true. Like, like big, big companies are not susceptible to the same kinds of risks that small businesses are. That's why they sell for low multiples. That's true. Okay. So you think, uh, yeah, that makes sense because a lot of those statistics are out there and I, I've noticed that. And we've already talked about Amazon FBA. My biggest concern I have is a lot of concentration problems. I'm, my whole business is right at the moment on Amazon FBA. I've tried to expand to other marketplaces. They didn't work very good. One worth it. So Amazon FBA, my, I only have a few suppliers. You know, I've got some concentration issues around some areas and I'm going, man, you just go long enough. Eventually one of those concentration issues will just, just statistically it'll just come up and then you could be out of business real quick. So I've thought about expanding out of that by buying others and expanding into other marketplaces and so on and see what I can do. And that's one of the things I'm exploring here. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. But I, I do have to get going. 
Okay. I appreciate it. Uh, David, it's been great. I really appreciate it. I've learned a ton. Um, I, don't be surprised you see me on the business buyer adventure soon. Uh, well, it'd be great to have you. I think there'd be a, you'd have a lot of interesting input into the conversation and, and just about that group, about half the people in the group are already business owners and they're looking to grow through acquisition. And the other half are like experienced professional people in different trades or with management experience. And, and they're looking to leave a job throughout, through buying a business. Um, there's been many, many cases now already where people have been able to give advice to each other in the group because different members will have applicable experience in different fields. So it's, it's, it, there's value in the community. You know, the fact that you're a part of a bunch of people who all have the same goal. It sounds like a good mastermind group. It, it is. And it's all, it is strictly focused on this one thing, you know, mm -hmm. on, on, on acquiring. So yeah, That's that, great. Was my, that was my, my goal when I put it together. That's great, David. I appreciate it very much for you doing all this, by the way. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's been great. Very, very helpful. No problem, Cody. Best of luck. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right. Bye.